This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's uh, turn to Scott DeVoe now. He's got a great, great scoop on the terminal, moving shares and getting people interested all around this potential. Or I guess it it actually is a transaction to the extent that we've had Elliott Management, well-known investor, uh, Paul Singer's shop, going into Twitter, pushing for changes, including saying, Jack Dorsey, uh, maybe he shouldn't be the CEO. Scott's with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. First of all, congrats. Great scoop. Uh, moving the shares, Thanks. Uh, a green bee, as we call it here internally. <laughs> uh, it's a big deal. So what's going on? So I, I think for the longest time, people were kind of looking at uh, Jack Dorsey at Twitter and wondering how he could divide his time between his, uh, Twitter and then his other job, which is uh, CEO of Square. They're both um, you know, a $35 billion company. Twitter's a $26 billion company. It's a full and, plate, to say the yeah. least. And he's also came out and said that he was you know, looking to spend about six months of the year working in Africa now. Um, so I think the alarm bells started going off for a lot of investors. And then when that happens, it doesn't take too long for somebody like Elliot to show up. So how big a holding do they have and what are they pushing for? And tell us about this meeting where Twitter executives were there, but Jack Dorsey was not. Yeah, so they own more than a billion dollar stake in the company. Um, And on Friday night, they had a meeting with the chairman and the lead director, Elliot did, uh, to discuss some of their concerns. And I mean, it's not uncommon to not have the CEO in the room if you're going to be talking about the CEO and and the future of the, the CEO. So I wasn't too surprised that Dorsey wasn't there. But, you know, it makes it a lot easier to facilitate a conversation about some of your concerns about Dorsey if he's not actually there. And so how likely, how feasible is it that they'll get something satisfactory out of all this? I don't think that it comes as a surprise to the board that there are increasing concerns about the level of... um, involvement uh, Dorsey has and his divided attention. So I think this has got to be something that they were thinking of already. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I don't know that for a fact, but I do know that the conversations between Elliot and uh, the chairman and the lead director were cordial, uh, constructive, they were described to me as, and that um, there is some hope that maybe there'll be some, some way, some path forward that they can work together. I would also want to ask you about sort of Elliot right now and Paul Singer. I mean, this is the second time we've talked to you in, in as many weeks, I believe, because we were talking to you about SoftBank. I mean, yeah, th- this guy's going for it, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, it's a $40 billion fund now. And yeah. uh, it's, it's you know, you got to deploy that capital somehow. Um, you've got the clout. Um, and there's these targets that are just out there. You right. know, and Masasan SoftBank, you know, we're all talking about all the problems they're having with the Vision Fund. And Not we the were, kingmaker that, or the guaranteed kingmaker in terms of startups that I think everyone assumed it was. Right. And I think that, so as soon as that happens in a public realm, there's only a few people that have the uh, capital that can go into a company like SoftBank or Twitter and say, you know, hey, look, this isn't right. Like, this shouldn't be running this way. And Elliot's one of those people. I do. If I can, sorry, I just want to go back to Twitter for a second. Is it is it likely that the Dorsey era of Twitter is going to come to an end? 
Look, I'm, I'm not good at predicting things. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at deciding who's going to win an election or <laughs> a primary or whatever. And, but I would say that the writing's on the wall. If he wants to continue to run both companies and move to Africa for six months of the year, there's absolutely no way that uh, somebody running a, you know, a $26 billion company should be having those side jobs. It's, it's a full-time job. There's a U.S. election coming up. There's Summer Olympics coming up. There's spread of coronavirus. That's when all the users start turning to Twitter. That's when all the advertisers start turning to Twitter. Right. And you, that requires somebody's full-time attention. Well, and there are so many big existential questions, and we've talked about them on this show a lot, around mm -hmm. you know Twitter's role in the world of politics, in the world of misinformation and information and all of those things. And yet, as you alluded to, Scott, at least so far as it was with uh, SoftBank or as it has been with SoftBank, fairly friendly at, at this moment. This isn't yeah. sort of storming the gates. At this yeah, point. I mean, to be clear, Elliot has nominated four directors to right. the board. Um, and, you know, that's just a precaution if things don't go well, then, you know, they have the people there because there was a deadline for nominating. They have those directors there. So if things don't go well, then they can push for changes in a, in a proxy fight. I do feel like the Twitter story, how many conversations have we had? You know, I think their numbers may have been, I have to go back and look at the most recent earnings, but I do think people wonder about like, kind of what is this business going forward, right? It's well, kind of I, if you look at the numbers, since Dorsey came back in July, 2015, the shares are down 6%. Over that same period of time, Facebook's are up 121. Um, so you do the math. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's very well, and just problems. to point out, uh, Twitter shares, you know, really based on your reporting, uh, up about seven percent today. So clearly, investors excited about the idea that uh, Mr. Singer and his cohorts uh, getting in there. Any any kind of timeline that we can expect that we might start to see something happening here? I'm hearing that things are moving fast. Ah. All right. Well, stay tuned, and uh, so you might lose another weekend. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, or just a week. Or just, oh, a week. just a week. All right, Scott Devoe. Thank you so much, Deals Reporter. Fantastic scoop. One of the most read on the Great Bloomberg. Uh, people certainly talking about this amid a very, very busy uh, week in politics and global economics and central banks and coronavirus. Uh, this is capturing a lot of attention. A lot of pet shop boys these days. Love yeah. the pet shop boys. Do Takes you? me back. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Love them. Oh yeah. Hundo. Hundo P. Hundo P. <laughs> uh, Nick Parrish is here with us, managing director of Crescent Partners, based out in Chicago. Here with us in New York City today, talking opportunity zones. That's the subject of the story. So, tell us uh, what's going on out there because we've heard a lot about them sort of in theory, but I feel like less in practice. Sure. What are you seeing? Yep, so I think, you know, it's uh, it's a good point, right? This is a relatively new piece of legislation. It's 15 months old in practice, a little bit older in legislation. And it caught a lot of excitement early on, right? It's, you know, if you look at the magnitude of these tax breaks, there's a huge opportunity for investors, but it's new and it's been largely untested. And so, you know, initially you saw a lot of people talking about it, but not a lot of activity. And I think now, you know, you're 15 months in and, you know, while that's uh, only the early innings of the program, you know, you're starting to see some of that act activity, whether it be in, in the fundraising side or actual deployment of capital. Um, and so now I think there's a, you know, there's, an, there's a subset of folks in the market that are actually getting things done. And I think we're, you know, we're starting to see that, uh, that percolate. All right. So you've got money. I know. So, so give me an idea. 
of the types of projects we're costing, you know, that we're talking about, Nick, yeah. that where the money's going to go? Because you know that there's a fair amount of controversy sure. surrounding opportunity zones. Are they really an opportunity zone or is it a zone that's yeah. already turning and it's just a great opportunity for wealthy investors to kind of tap into? Yeah. So, so you know, the, the government designated where we could invest, right? So there's 8,700 zones. So in other words, if I'm going to finger point, I should point at the government, <laughs> yeah. right? And I, I don't mean to point fingers, but, you know, it, it, it is, you know, they, and, and by the way, you know, it's not all um, necessarily, you know, political in terms of how those got selected. So, one of the biggest disconnects in the program they used um, they used employment statistics and they used income levels from the last census. If you remember from your high school civics class, we do a census every ten years, and so you had opportunity zones that were selected based on income and poverty levels in 2010. If you think of really high growth markets, just, and especially just coming off the crisis, so those correct. numbers are in particular, particularly kind of skewed. Correct. And so if you look at where a lot of the capital is flowing today, a lot of these are high growth markets yeah. in, in places where nine years, 10 years makes a world of difference. You think about markets like Portland, like Nashville, like Denver, you know, there are areas that 10 years ago might have been very much on the periphery of these of these cities that now today are very much in the center of that economic development curve. Um, and so that's where you're seeing a lot of the capital today. But, you know, I like to remind people we're 15 months into a 10 year program. You know, you're only starting to see that capital get deployed. What our hope is, is that it will create a path to progress where if you build on the periphery of these areas, that will give the next developer a little more license mm -hmm. to go a little bit further out, and that will give capital kind of a natural path to follow. And what could get in the way of this? I mean, is it macroeconomic concerns? Is it further legislation? Is it local legislation? Like, what do you worry yeah. about? I think, you know, the, the further legislation piece, that, that ebbs and flows, and, sure. you know, we're in, a, in a, an election cycle. What? So we're, we, is, is there a presidential election going uh, on? So we get, you know, we might fall, I don't want to say fall a victim to that. I, I think that the likelihood that any of that changes before the, the next election yeah. is pretty slim to nil. You will see some local elections that we need to be mindful of, you know, around housing and zoning that, that I think, uh, you know, by and large, a lot of the local municipalities have actually been supportive of this because mm. they see this as an opportunity to attract capital to the zones located in their cities and, uh, and states. And so we've seen a number of, of um, political entities get very involved in kind of advertising that. Um, you know, I think macroeconomic fun fundamentals are certainly of note, though that's one of the benefits of this program. It's a 10-year hold, so it's very much designed for a long-term investment uh, horizon, and so you don't have to be as mindful of the you know, daily and weekly dips in the market. It's much more long-term. Is it safe to say um, that even without the tax breaks, these are areas you would have been investing in anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the real magic or the real challenge in this program, right? The, the way the whole legislation is designed is it allows you to own assets for a long period of time and then to sell them without capital gains tax. That only does you good if you have generated a gain, right? So this is not a program where you can go out and you get a you know participant medal for trying. Right. You have to make a good investment. But if you make a good investment and then layer the benefits on top of it, that's when this becomes interesting. So th that's the real challenge is you have to find opportunities to invest that make sense, that kind of pencil to a normal you know, yeah. investment return, 
that exist within these defined zones. All right, Nick Parrish, thank you so much. Managing Director for Crested Partners, based out in Chicago, working on Opportunity Zones. We're forgiving the fact that he is a Marquette guy and his basketball team is better than mine. We're I'm just going to leave okay that to the it. side. That's You're a neutral Jason Kelly yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm exactly. Cool. We're all neutral here, uh, <laughs> especially because we're going to be the host of the Big East Tournament. And, you know, we'll see what happens then. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. All right, Nick, thank you so much. All right, so certainly the big players when it comes to the housing mortgage market, we're talking about uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, these two um, companies, I don't even know what you call them because they're government-sponsored enterprises. Companies. Uh, right? Companies. Yeah, yes. companies. Well, they're publicly <laughs> traded. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they're publicly traded. No, 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 no. Oh, come on, you guys aren't being fair. They trade publicly, although they've been taken over by the government, but they have a lot of government oversight. Uh, and their keeper is still the U.S. government. So let's get into this story. It's going to be the upcoming issue of the magazine. Elizabeth Dexheimer is financial regulation and congressional reporter at Bloomberg News. She's on the phone in Washington. You have to help me out here, <laughs> Elizabeth. Also, <laughs> no, with us- you you've hit it on the head. Uh, these <laughs> companies are two of the weirdest sagas in modern finance. All right, Fannie so- Mae and Freddie Mac, two very important companies at the heart of the mortgage market. They buy mortgages from lenders. They package them into securities and sell them to investors. And this whole process uh, really makes it possible for the 30-year mortgage to exist. It has bearing on everything from mortgage rates to home prices. And during the financial crisis, um, these companies were about to fail. U.S. taxpayers had to step in, bail them out. And since then, they've operated in this really weird place where, yes, they have shareholders and uh, have earnings. They've returned to profitability and otherwise look like normal publicly traded companies. But on the other hand, they are completely controlled by the government. And where we're at now is the Trump administration has promised to fix all of this and uh, in more than sort of at the core of this to free them from government control. And they've promised to do it without the help of Congress. And so that's really put a lot of eyeballs in certain places on Wall Street focused on uh, Mark Calabria. He is the director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which is their chief regulator. Right. The and, fa- and, 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 that's, and that's the story. You say the fate of it all largely hinges on one man. I know Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber also here. So um, uh, Dexheimer's done a great job on this. And I guess the thing that I'm really interested in, like the people that um, come up in the article is really the hedge fund world, right? So at what, what, how do they factor into all of this? Right. So that is one really in, um, big group on, on Wall Street right now. The shareholders in these companies themselves, which do include some pretty prominent hedge funds uh, and investors like John Paulson and Bill Ackman, they um, made a big bet on these companies a long time ago, and they've yet to really see it pay off. And so depending on what happens and sort of the details on how these companies are freed from U.S. control, there's a lot of money riding um, among shareholders, uh, whether or not they're going to be able to see that and, and sort of how much. And quite frankly, I can tell you after spending a lot of time with Mark Calabria, and it it really is unclear. Um, He he does play a big role in this, as does the Treasury Department, but it's really unclear where they're going to go on this shareholder question. Uh, You can just look at the shares of these companies. The the past few months, they have been surging on sort of optimism that this is going to go their way. But I can tell you that it's it's really unclear whether or not they are going to see the payday that they're hoping for. And tell us about this guy. I mean, because as you point out, I mean, it's all it's all to him. Like, what do Mm -hmm. we know? 
Well, right. Him and uh, the, the uh, Treasury Secretary right. Mnuchin play a big Part role in this. Um, yeah. But not only is the power in his hands, but he's also been making a lot of really ambitious promises about how it's not a question of if, it's when this, you know, the, these companies are free and how quickly that's going to happen. I mean, he's saying in, in my interview with him, May or June of next year, we could be seeing a huge IPO of, of Fannie and, and, and Freddie. And um, yeah, so Calabria is, is, a, is a well-known sort of entity here in Washington. Um, he was a uh, 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 Republican staffer on the Hill for many years. He was at the uh, conservative think tank Cato Institute, and he most recently served as Mike Pence's chief uh, economist. Um, so he's definitely, in a lot of sort of what he's done, um, he has had some controversial views on, on housing reform in the past. And as he even puts it, a lot of what he's done the, the past few months since taking this job is sort of reassuring a lot of the different people. Um, that have a lot of stake in the decisions he makes, that um, you know, his role as a regulator is different from that as a, <laughs> a conservative well, uh, writer. Yeah, and to that end, like, what, what, what was the controversy? Uh, well, he's he's made some comments in the past, including about around shareholders, this, this issue around the, the hedge funds. Um, he believes that the hedge funds should have been wiped out, um, or any of the shareholders in Fannie and Freddie, when they were when the government bailed them out. Um, he has said that no circumstances right now would indicate that the they, the shareholders should be wiped out again. But um, if they were facing another on the brink of failure again, he believes the shareholders should be wiped out. So it's things like that that, um, you know, ha, ha, is part of this narrative and trying to understand where he's really going with all of this. Which, if you're an investor or anybody else watching this stuff, it's just like you get this kind of cloudy picture that, you know, markets don't always like. Um, and so what, what, what does all this mean for me and my mortgage? Well, that remains to be seen. I think part of the reason why it has taken so long to sort of fix this and the the companies sort of remain in this weird state that they're at is because politically, no politician, Republican or Democrat, wants to do anything that would really mess with the mortgage market or mess with your ability or anyone's ability to buy a home. And uh, and quite frankly, there's a lot, the housing market is booming right now. There's a lot that's working in the system right now. And uh, so I think that that is sort of the biggest question, that how do you do all these things and not sort of uh, mess with anything that is currently going well? And that's where I think urgency, there's a lot of time like the whatever they do um there's not only an election coming up where the the people that um are going to decide this may may change with a new administration but it's also if the markets you know if the public markets um take a change if the housing market takes a a turn for the worse it's going to be a lot harder to make changes so i have a question 191 billion dollar question elizabeth um (laughs) has the government that was the bailout um that the government did for fannie and freddie has that been paid back it's been paid, and since then, the terms of the bailout agreement were changed a few years ago, and uh, Fannie and Freddie have been sending all of their profits to the, the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, Calabria and Secretary Mnuchin made a slight tweak to that um, in September, so now Fannie and Freddie are retaining more of their profits. Once they reach a certain amount, they send the rest to, to Treasury. So, yes, Treasury has been uh, repaid. All right, final thought to you, Mr. Weber. Well, I think it, to me, it, it speaks to like how these things get messy, yeah. right? Like, are they companies? Totally. Are they not companies? Well, are and we that's supposed a, to, get to Carol's this, exact question at the top that we gave her a hard person, time for. And, and who's the person behind this? Because right. ultimately, it's he, he's going to be uniquely put in into a position that's going to test him. So TBD, what comes out of that? But, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm a little better off. Thanks to Elizabeth kind of yeah, filling totally. in some Yeah, holes. totally. 
No, it really it mapped it out uh, really well. Elizabeth Dexheimer joining us from Washington on the phone, financial regulation and congressional reporter. Her story on the Bloomberg and on Bloomberg.com right now will be in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Businessweek. Our thanks, too, to the editor of the magazine, Joel Weber. Just a reminder that we're not all done with the financial crisis, oh, right? We keep talking about everything or so many things that have, have made their way back, but we're still figuring out Fannie and Freddie, which is why this is a really smart story. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. First of all, we have the U.S.-China trade war. Now we've got the coronavirus. Global supply chains, they have no doubt about it been attacked and in many ways for some uh, stopped, causing many to rethink and reverse the great globalization trend from west to east. Andy Brown writes about it. He is Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You know, I do feel like, right, all of this started with the trade war, but it's really picked up some momentum as a result of the virus, Andy. Can I just bring one uh, headline that just crossed the Bloomberg? Uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, to endorse uh, former Vice President Joe Biden at a rally tonight. That is according to the AP. So not shocking, uh, especially given the phone calls that we understand uh, were made last night by the former vice president and the former president, uh, Obama. So... um, some interesting momentum building yeah. on that side. So watching politics this week and obviously watching the virus. So Andy, you write about this and you talk about deglobalization in particular, how it's accelerating. Yeah, I, you know, I feel I have a personal connection to this story because over the last couple of years, I spent a lot of time in Dongguan, a manufacturing hub in southern China, just across the border from Hong Kong. And about a decade or 15 years ago, something like that, in the, in the early mid-90s, Dongguan was a sleepy agricultural backwater. Uh, rice paddies, uh, village temples, clan-based government. And then suddenly, it started sprouting factories. And it goes from a population of you know hundreds of thousands to one of the great cities in the world with more mm. than 10 million people. And there is this huge misconception uh, around the world, particularly in the United States, how this process came about. People say China stole American jobs. It was nothing of the sort. American industrialists and industrialists from all over the world decided to relocate their manufacturing to Dongguan and places around Dongguan for two reasons. One, price, but far more important than price, efficiency. Mm. The coronavirus, that's really the process of globalization. The coronavirus has really blown those calculations out of the water. So that if you are now a global CEO and you're asking a question, where should I build my next factories? And the only question on your mind is, am I going to go for price? Am I going to go for efficiency is the wrong question, or at least it's, it's not... There are other more important questions to ask, of which the most important now is how can I make my business, my global business, resilient to shocks coming out of China? And so as you sort of take a step back from all of this, I mean, you look at the new economy. It's literally your job. Um, So, I mean, what do you make of this at this point in terms of the near term, but maybe more importantly, the long term effect of this? So it's going to have a profound effect on the Chinese economy. So the aggregation of supply chains in China was seen as a great strength of the global economy, and it's now seen Mm -hmm. as a liability. So, you know, I've spoken to uh, managers of companies or or managers who are managing the operation in China, 
They're talking about relocating, not, not just about relocating production at the margins, sort of where am I going to build my next factory, but how do I take manufacturing capacity that's already in China and move it offshore? We're talking about shocks now, trade shocks. Uh, U.S.-China trade war. We're talking about tech shocks, uh, the technology right. decoupling between the United States and China that we've discussed on this show a lot. And now we're talking about black swan events, you know, of course, most notably right now, coronavirus. How much do you think, Andy, China knew that this, I mean, that obviously people, companies, global companies started to shift some of their operations to other lower cost providers, whether it was Vietnam or so on and so forth, right? We'd started to see that trend. How much of you know, China seeing this, and that's why they've been so much focusing on being more of a high-tech provider, right? You know, much more sophisticated industries and moving their focus to that because they saw kind of the writing on the wall. Well, they did. They, what, what, what happened was, I mean, ex for exactly the same reasons that industry moved from the Massachusetts and Connecticut and moved down south uh, and then moved to the, you know, uh, uh, over to Asia in, you know, the 1960s and 19. 70s, right. uh, you know, those are the same forces that are, have, have been at work for the last several days in Dongguan, uh, several years in Dongguan, right? Mm -hmm. So labor-intensive manufacturing is shipping out. That's very natural. That's a natural, normal process of, of globalization. So that's shipped to, to Vietnam. Some of it has gone to Bangladesh, even Ethiopia, uh, parts of, of Africa. What's different now is the, the driver of this, what, what looks like deglobalization, and it's fear. It's fear mm -hmm. of over reliance on China. Right. It is amazing. I mean, you know, as you say, just sort of synthesizing everything that's happened uh, over the past what? year or so, how much the story related to China has changed. You think about the protests, you think about the trade war, you think about the coronavirus. It's dramatic. What a difference. There's a line yeah. that you wrote, deglobalization is driven by the discomforting, um, am I saying it right? Discom discomforting. Discomforting. <laughs> oh, sorry. Maybe there's a typo here. Dis uh, discomforting realization that the entire system now has a single point of failure, China. Yeah. Like that is just like to get your head around it. Like so many people have placed their bets, right? In terms of the supply chains in China and um, being our workforce for so right. long. Right, so, and those those bets are now gonna have to be unwound. The question now is where is some of this production gonna go, gonna go to, right? I mean, yeah. so, you know, it's gonna go to countries that actually are protected because they have the least amount of connection to the Chinese economy. Yeah. They have their own supply Amazing. chains. If you're in if you're a country in Eastern Europe Europe now, you're looking actually to benefit from all this. Mexico is in a terrific position right now. Because they'll pick it all up. Yeah. It's it wild. all shifts around. Uh, that's why they call it the new economy. All right, uh, Andrew Brown, Andy Brown, thank you so much. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this money. Back with us is Charlie Smith, co-founder, chief investment officer at Fort Pitt Capital Group. 
They've got uh, $3.4 billion in assets under management on the phone from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I say this, and Charlie Pella just uh, talked about it, because investors are definitely buying into the close. Right now up 4.2% on the Dow, up 1,062 wow. points. NASDAQ's up almost 3.4%, up 290 points. And you've got uh, the S&P with a percentage gain of roughly 3.7%, up 109 points. But no doubt about it, we're at our best levels of the day. Charlie Smith, um, is this all because everybody expects the Fed to cut rates? Uh, I'm not sure that's the reason. I, I think the the idea that this issue with the coronavirus is going to be behind us within the next four months, I think, is starting to take wait, wait, hold. Wait, stop right there, that the issue of the coronavirus is going to be behind us in four months. We still have four months, though, to get through. We're talking about, you know, more than a quarter of, well, I mean, that's an impact. Well, markets are, are discounting mechanisms. And, uh, you know, it, we may have a quarter here in the U.S. where we get a negative print for GDP. Uh, and the third quarter may be flat year over year, but uh, I think that would imply a pretty strong rebound in the fourth quarter. And markets are always looking, you know, six to nine months ahead. So um, I, I think the idea that uh, that this problem is not going to be any sort of a permanent one is is going to take hold here very quickly. And even more importantly, potential downside. Even if we do get uh, maybe one or two quarters of um, of flat to negative GDP. Uh, you know, the, the the impairment of S&P earnings this year might be 3 or 4%. That would get you to a $158 number for S&P earnings for the year. You put an 18 multiple on that, that gives you a fair value of around 28.50, and we were at 29.50 on Friday. So I think we've pretty much discounted the problem. Wow. That's I, it? Did, That's I mean, it? Does that surprise you that the, the market sort of digested this? as quickly as it did and now is moving on? I mean, this feels fast to me, at least. Well, it, it, to me, it seems as if the entire uh, presentation of the problem has been overblown. Huh. Um, you know, I understand that, uh, that the, the, the number of cases is going to rise exponentially in the U.S., but the, uh, the final outcome of this is going to be what I believe to be amounts to a hyper-severe flu season. Um, and the sorts of sort of outcome that if we really hadn't been so sort of hyper attuned to it due to the way it's been presented in the media, we might have missed it. Um, so I, I, I just really think that the, that the markets are smarter than that. So, okay. That's interesting. So you think the markets are already discounting this, even though it might get substantially worse. What might change your tunes, tune on that? Like, what's well, the outcome of the virus that would make you say, all right, wait a minute, I underestimated this? Well, uh, let's talk about what we see as is going to happen in the next three to four months. We could see, uh, you know, big public events canceled, flat out, you know, just canceled. And, uh, you know, there's talk here recently of uh, potential for the, uh, the NCAA basketball tournament to be played in front of empty gymnasiums. That could certainly happen. It could wreck the second quarter for GDP. But uh, I think once we get beyond the, the early summer, July, uh, we'll be at the point where the, the problem has begun to, to fade. Now, people will begin to worry about the return of the flu season for next year. But it, there may be at some point where we've come up with some, some, some drugs that, that will be able to help lessen the impact. But I think uh, it's going to work its way through the system. It may be... You know, the headlines may be awful for the next month and a half in terms of the growth in cases, but uh, I think the marks are going to see right through that. All right. So talk to us in the midst of all this about some names that you like, because, you know, this is 
not an easy market to, to get your arms around. Uh, what are you uh, What are you recommending here? Well, we have sort of a, an eclectic list here. Yeah. Uh, we're, we've owned Verizon for over a decade. Uh, we like the strong yield of you know 4.6% yield there. Uh, people are going to uh, not going to give up their cell phones. They may give up an overseas trip, but they're they're never going to give up their cell phones. And uh, uh, the uh, the idea that uh, Verizon has a, a excess cash flow, highest quality network in the in the country. Uh, we think they're a nice conservative play here. We also like Western Digital, um, the, the big player in, in hard disk drives and NAND flash memory. Flash memory prices are rebounding pretty aggressively. Um, we think they could earn as much as $7 in their fiscal year ending next September. So they're selling at about eight times earnings with a 3.5% yield. So it's a reasonably cheap stock with some decent uh, earnings momentum to look forward to. Uh, finally, we like a little firm here in Pittsburgh called Two Six Incorporated. The symbols I I V I. They make uh, uh, equipment for optical switching, uh, promote uh, communications and industrial uses. Um, the optical switch is a is a uh, is a reality, and they make the gear that makes those switches work. The pride of Saxonburg, PA. Interesting. Yes, absolutely, about thirty miles from downtown Pittsburgh. There you go. Uh, what don't you like in, in this market? What are you avoiding uh, in a market like this? Well, um, we would stay away from the utilities and the, uh, the, the whole household products uh, segment, really. Uh, we, we think the, uh, the huge spike we've seen in rates uh, or in yields uh, mm-hmm. collapsing here in the last uh, six weeks really obviates any real attractiveness to the bond market. Uh, and so the uh, the household names and the uh, and the utilities are ones that we would be staying away from right now. I do wonder, um, Charlie, if you think that okay. So here we are up almost five percent of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. I mean, there's a bunch of investors chasing these gains right now um, sure. as we head to our highs. We're now up uh, over twelve hundred points on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. How much of what we lost? Uh, in this 10% correction, 10%, uh, more than 10% correction, how much do we get back? Because it's safe to say that most folks thought the market was overvalued based on the earnings outlook and the fundamentals. Um, so how much of it do you think we ultimately get back if, as you say, investors are looking past beyond the virus at this point? Yes. So uh, I always put it in terms of what we think we might earn this year. As I said, if we get a negative GD print, in the GDP print in the second quarter, we get a flat number in the third. We could we could get back to a flat earnings number for the year. Um, so you know you put an 18, 18 and a half multiple on that, which would be actually slightly up from year end um, because interest rates have fallen so much in the interim. Um, you could get to basically back where we were at the beginning of the year, maybe up two or three percent for the year. Interesting. All right. Uh, great conversation. Thank you so much. Charlie Smith, co-founder, chief investment officer of Fort Pitt Capital Group, looking after about $3.4 billion, joining us on the phone from Pittsburgh. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.